As Terry mentioned last week, uh, Christmas is the most celebrated holiday in the world by more people in more nations than any other holiday. But unlike other holidays, Christmas is about a divine person and remembers a divine event. It does not celebrate human achievement, but divine accomplishment. There is nothing man-made about the Christmas story. It is the most miraculous, compelling narrative in history. As the Holy Spirit records for us in Scripture the dramatic story of Jesus Christ's birth. Those who truly celebrate Christmas do so by remembering the profound reality that God sent his only begotten son to die for the sins of those who put their faith in him. This is the event that divides human history. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Latin, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The most complete accounts of Jesus' birth are found in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. But it's not the first time Scripture talks about the coming Messiah. There are many references about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And before we read today's passage, which I won't reread because Emmanuel has already done it. That was my passage for today, so thank you, Emmanuel. Uh, So we know that the angel Gabriel is going to come to Mary to tell her that she's about to have a baby. What might Mary have known from her time going to the synagogue and hearing the scriptures read to her while she was growing up? What could be in her mind as she heard these words from the angel Gabriel? So I want to look at some of those prophecies, and this is just a few of them. We're not going to read all of the scripture that goes to all these prophecies, so I've given you the references there for you to look up for your own study. So the first thing that we see, though, in Scripture is in Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah would be of the seed of a woman. Now, you might want to write this down. I'm going to give you the dates that this happened in history, if you want to make a note of that. That happened in 4004 B.C. The Messiah would also be the seed of Abraham, which is recorded for us in Genesis 12.3, and that happened in 1921 B.C. The Messiah would be of the seed of Isaac, Genesis 17.19. That event happened in 1898 and also is repeated in Genesis 21.2 or 21.12. Now, I apologize uh, on the tribe of Judah. I said Judah 49.10. I hope too many people didn't look for the book of Judah. It's, it's, it's Genesis 49.10. And that was in 1689 B.C. that we learned that the Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah. And also the Messiah would be as a prophet like Moses. And Moses recorded that for us in Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18 in 1451 B.C. And also that the throne of David would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13 And that event happened in 1042 B.C. And in Job, the oldest written book in the Bible, we see Job recognizing 
the promised redeemer. 19, Job 19, 15 through 27. I just want to read a couple of those verses for you. And this event happened in 1520 B.C. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives in the last, and that the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart fit faints within me. Job, who didn't have any revealed scripture except what we see in Job, knew that my Redeemer lives. The Messiah would be declared to be the Son of God, and we see that in Psalms 2, 6, and 7 in 1047 B.C. In verse 7 it says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The Messiah would be of a priest like Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 tells us that. We don't know when that one was written. David's seed to reign, Psalm 132.11. Probably the most famous prophecy that we know of in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus is Isaiah 7.14. That event happened in 758 B.C. that the Lord would be born, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, God with us. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a sign, a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And last, but by far, not the, in this list, but not the least, and there are more, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.12. And that prophecy was written in 710 B.C., now, the reason I highlighted the dates, and you might ask me where I got the dates, it's out of one of those Bibles over there, the 1760 King James Bibles. I remember growing up as a kid, the Bibles, the dates on every page of the Bible were in the Bibles. And I can remember that. Creation was 4004 B.C. James Usher, a Westminster divine, did the history of the world, the chronology. It's called the Annals of the World. And from about 1700 onward, and I don't know exactly when we stopped putting the dates in the Bible, those dates were put in the Bible. So you go to every page of the Bible and you'll see what date it was happening in those Bibles. So if, for your own reference, it's, it's, uh, it's actually there by uh, Sam. The one standing up and the one laying down, they both have those dates in them. The 1769 Oxford edition and the 1762 Cambridge edition of the, of the King James Bible. So skeptics might ask, well, how do we know that the Bible was written before Christ? You know, until 1947, we, we didn't have an answer for that. But archaeology helped us with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves in southern Israel. And we found Hebrew text written before Christ, and they matched the Hebrew text that we have today. God preserves his word. The Old Testament has over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ and his ministry and his life, his first coming and his second coming. And we know by reading the New Testament that the prophecies of the Old Testament that were written before Christ came true. 
And that gives me a lot of confidence in the Bible, that the Bible is the true word of God. And all his prophecies about his second coming, I have no doubt, will come true. There was so much in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ that on the road to Emmaus, the risen Christ chided his followers for failing to recognize the significance and applicability to him in the Old Testament. In your own time, take the time to read Luke 24, 25 through 27, and 44 through 45. But to summarize what Jesus said to his followers on the road to Emmaus, in verse 27, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving your true word that you had recorded by your select human instruments that so we could have your word and know the truth. We ask that our eyes are opened and that we understand your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the passage that Emmanuel read for us is titled in your ESV, The Birth of, the, of Jesus Foretold. Another way we could label it is the divine announcement to Mary. Luke's simple, unadorned, unembellished account of Gabriel's announcement to Mary emphasizes the divine character of Christ's birth. We see the divine messenger, the divine choice, the divine blessing, the divine child, and of course, the divine miracle. In Luke 1, 26, verse 26, the divine messenger. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We see that this happened in the sixth month, but the sixth month of what? Well, further in the passage in verse 36, we see it's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And we see that God sent the angel Gabriel. Gabriel means mighty one of God. And we see him four times in the Bible. We see him twice here in Luke when he comes to Zechariah in uh, Luke 1, 19 and 26. And twice in Daniel, in Daniel 8, 16 and 9, 21. Back in Luke 1, 19, Gabriel is saying to Zechariah, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news, that his wife Elizabeth, who was barren, that, that they would have a child, John the Baptist. Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah broke 400 years of revelatory silence since the closing of the Old Testament. The angel Gabriel would come again in just a few short months to reveal the most significant birth announcement the world has ever known, heralding the most monumentally significant event in human history, the birth of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Gabriel came as God's messenger 
to give Daniel an understanding of the multiple visions that he had. In a similar fashion, Zechariah and Mary were given the under, an understanding of God's intention by Gabriel. So we see Gabriel came to Mary in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. Gabriel was sent by God, and it took place in the region of Galilee in the town of Nazareth. Why Nazareth? Matthew tells us in 2.23, And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's no Old Testament reference to that, but uh, it's in God's word, so we know it's true. The divine choice, Luke one twenty-seven, to a virgin, excuse me, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angelic announcement of John the Baptist's birth came to an elderly priest in the temple in Jerusalem. But the announcement of Jesus' miraculous birth came to a young girl, unknown girl, in a small, insignificant village. Nazareth was definitely off the beaten path. She is described, first of all, as a virgin. And a virgin refers to a person, as we know, who has never had sexual relations and would never be used to describe a married woman. The Greek is very specific about that, virgin. In Jewish practices, girls were usually engaged at the age of 12 or 13 and married at the end of one year of their betrothal period. This particular virgin was betrothed, as we see, to a man named Joseph. In Scripture, we see two different genealogies. In Matthew 1 through 17, we see the genealogy of Christ through Joseph, showing that Joseph descended from David. Thus, Jesus is also the son of David. Although Joseph was not Jesus' natural father, his adoption of Jesus made him legally part of David's lineage. The genealogy in Matthew thus establishes Christ's claim to the throne of David as Joseph's legal heir. Likewise, Luke 3, 23 through 38, traces Christ's genealogy through Mary back to David. Thus, Jesus inherited from his adoptive father, Joseph, the legal right to David's throne, while his physical descent from David came from his mother, Mary. In every legitimate sense, both legally and physically, Jesus Christ was the son of David, born to be Israel's true king. The divine blessing, Luke 1, 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She was undoubtedly doing normal domestic chores of a 12- or 13-year-old Jewish girl. The angel's first words to her were a common, everyday greeting, greet, salutation, greetings, or hello. Since Zechariah panicked when Gabriel appeared to him, Gabriel's low-key introduction, an immediate statement of blessing, was likely intended to calm and reassure Mary. 
By addressing her as favored one, Gabriel indicated that Mary had nothing to fear, but was to become the recipient of God's grace. There was nothing intrinsically worthy about her that set her above other believers, as if she was perfectly holy. Like all people, she was a sinner in need of God's grace. The salutation, unfortunately, has been confiscated to form the basis of the familiar Roman Catholic prayer as the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary. This is where they get it from. And I want to teach you a little bit about what the Roman Church teaches. So if you're witnessing to anybody that's in the Catholic Church, you can understand where some of their belief systems come from. This erroneous premise of that prayer is based on the Latin Vulgate's rendering of favored one as gratia plena. That's what it is in the Latin, full of grace. And the Latin Vulgate's over there, the page is open to it, and you can see it in the upper right-hand corner on the right-hand page. You'll see ava, which means hail, gratia, plenty. Hail, full of grace. What the Catholic Church is saying is that Mary has been granted and possesses fullness of grace, which she can bestow on others. When the Greek manuscripts finally came into Western Europe just before the Reformation started, and, and the Greek scriptures helped the reformers understand that the Latin Vulgate had become corrupt over times. A famous Greek uh, professor in England, one of the first professors of Greek in England in the 1480s, was reading the Greek. And he concluded in his diary, either this, the original Greek, is not the gospel, or we're not Christians. That's how corrupt the Bible had become. And this was the church, or Martin Luther, William Tyndale, trying to help reform the church, but the church would not be reformed, the Catholic church. In Luke one twenty-eight, as we said, it's greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you in verse 28. But in the Latin Vulgate, it's hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed are thou among women. But John 1.14 tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is full of grace. Another thing that uh, helps... Uh, in, in the Roman Catholic's mind, uh, Mariology, if you want to call it that, is what we call the, uh, the Messiah would be of the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15. And this is when the devil is uh, being cursed by God, and God is speaking his curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, the devil's offspring, and her offspring, her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Latin Vulgate says, she shall crush thy head, and thou shall lie in wait for her heel. They teach that Mary will destroy the works of the devil. From this passage, from a bad translation of the Latin Vulgate. John, 1 John 3.8 tells us, 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 Kings 2.20 is another place that the, church, the Roman church goes to. This is King Solomon is on the throne. This happened in 1015 B.C. And Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, wants to petition. Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, wants to petition Solomon for a favor. That King Solomon's oldest half-brother asked Bathsheba to do. And he wanted his hand in marriage to a particular girl. Then she said, Bathsheba, in verse 20, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So in the previous passage, when she came to Solomon, Solomon was on his throne and he got a chair for Mary and sat it down next to him on his right side to have Mary, I mean Solomon, I mean, excuse me, Bathsheba asked Solomon the question. So the church takes this as Mary is at the right hand of her son on the throne and Mary will not refuse, uh, Jesus will not refuse his mother. And they... So, you have to be careful when you develop a theology out of one verse. You have to take it in context. Solomon's half-brother was competing for the throne, even though Solomon had been on the throne for a while. He worked very hard to be, he was the eldest surviving son of David, but he did not get to be the king. And he was trying still to maneuver his way. And if you go down to verse, verse 24 of 1 Kings 2, his brother's name was Adonijah. Solomon listened to Bathsheba's petition and said, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And today he was, he was commanded by some of his people to kill him. And he was killed that day. So he did not grant his mother's request. Another passage that the church looks to, the Roman church looks to, is Revelation 12, 1 through 6. I'm only going to read the first verse. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And they describe this as Mary being the queen in heaven. But you have to understand Revelations. It's a book of symbolism. And if you understand the symbolism that's going on in Revelation, something that doesn't quite line up the crown of 12 stars, but it does line up with Israel. This is about Israel. This is not about Mary. I did not understand until I undertook this study how much veneration there is of Mary. In the, in the Catholic Church. I know it was there. I know I see all the statues of Mary everywhere. And I didn't know that the church was basically double down, doubling down on the errors, if you will, from the Latin Vulgate. They know it's wrong. But they can't be wrong because it, they're infallible. They are the sole interpreter of Scripture. And thus it is so. And they can't change it. But in 1854, Pope Pius XIV 
put out a papal bull. When it's a papal bull and it's declared ex-cathedral, it means it's with papal infallibility. They're creating more scripture, if you will, or tradition that's equal with scripture. Using his papal infallibility, he declared the immaculate conception of Mary, that Mary was conceived without original sin. That is now dogma in the Catholic Church. And I was just surprised how recently it was, 1854, that they made it the dogma. Fifty years on the anniversary of that papal bull, Pope Pius X said Mary is the supreme minister of the distribution of graces in his papal, papal encyclical. There is no sure, no more direct road than Mary for un- uniting all mankind in Christ and obtaining through him the perfect adoption of sons that we may be holy and immaculate in the sight of God. In 1943, Pope Pius XII, Mary was also sinless personally, not just from original sin, but she lived a sinless life. 1950, Pope Pius XII again put out his papal bull, infallible, papal infallibility, the assumption of Mary, which is the bodily taking up of the Virgin Mary into heaven at the end of her earthly life. Pope Pius XII wasn't done. In 1954, he declared the new title for Mary, Queen of Heaven. In 1964, Pope John XXIII at the Second Vatican Council said, you know, Queen of Heaven's not good enough. Let's make her Queen of the Universe. And and, uh, he put out his papal encyclical. An encyclical is a, a letter that gets circulated to all the the magisterium, the cardinals, the bishops, and the priests. Hey, this is a new teaching of the Catholic Church. Of Mary's special place in salvation is the queen of the universe and the mediatrix, our mediator between us and Christ, to go to Mary. Pope Paul the twenty, uh, the second in 1993 helped uh, write a letter of blessing. He didn't attend the opening of the Basilica of the National Shrine of Mary. Queen of the Universe. In 1993, this church was commissioned with the Pope's blessing that the Holy Father called this a house of pilgrimage. This is a cha- place where Roman Catholics can do go for penance to earn grace. To the Basilica of the National Shrine of Mary, Queen of the Universe, in Orlando, Florida. Summing up the Catholic view that Mary is the mediator of all graces, Ludwig Ott writes, since all Mary's assumption into heaven, no grace is conferred on man without her actual intercessory cooperation. To worship Mary as if she were the queen of heaven is to mix paganism with biblical truth and to blaspheme the true king of heaven. To proclaim proclaim that Mary is a co-redemptrix and mediatrix of saving grace only compounds its false synchronistic view. And the synchronistic view is the blending of two religions into a new system. This is one of the Roman Catholic Church's most egregious errors, is its tuning of its self-proclaimed humble slave of God into the exalted queen of heaven. Such worship of Mary, which would appalled and horrified her, is nothing less than idolatry. There is no queen of heaven, 
Only the true and eternal king. Catholicism's elevation of Mary finds no support in Scripture. The concept of the queen of heaven, though, does appear in the Old Testament in connection with ancient pagan religion. The idea is driven from Assyrian and Babylonian beliefs and practices, and they were prevalent during Jeremiah's time in apostate Judah. And I give you the references there in your handout in Jeremiah, and I encourage you to read those uh, when you have the time. But God is talking to Jeremiah in the first section there, Jeremiah seven sixteen through 20. And in verse 18, this is what God is telling Jeremiah that they are doing. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to the Lord, to other gods, to provoke me to anger. I pray that I never provoke God to anger. The queen of heaven was the pagan goddess Ishtar, also called Ashtoreth and Astarte, the wife of Baal and Molech. Because those false deities symbolized fertility, worship to them also involved prostitution. Later, God once again used Jeremiah to confront his rebellious people over the issue. And they defiantly replied to Jeremiah in 44, 16 through 19. The people speaking asked for the word in verse 16. That you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour our our drink offerings to her. In response, the prophet Jeremiah in 44, 24 through 28, solemnly warned them of God's impending judgment. Verse 27, behold, I'm watching over them for disaster and not for good. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul speaking that you, speaking to the Corinthians, may learn from us not to go beyond what is written. Revelations 22, 18 through 19, two of the last four verses of the end of the Bible. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. Verse 19, and and if one takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's your definition of a cult. If you add to the word of God or you subtract from the word of God, we are taught to teach the whole counsel of God. And that's why we do expositional teaching here. So we teach everything, the whole counsel of God. We don't take away, and we obviously don't add to the word of God. That false, unbiblical view of Mary is an integral part of the Roman church's practice of Mariology, the veneration of Mary, the worship of Mary, which blasphemes the Lord's Jesus by worshiping another. In reality, Mary was a humble, redeemed sinner. She was not sinless from her conception until her bodily assumption into heaven, as Catholic dogma maintains. Since, as Jesus himself declared, no one is good except God alone. Luke eighteen nineteen. 
nor is Mary the co-redeemer of the human race. Since sinners are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 She does not hear and answer prayers or intercede for anyone. Since there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 The exalted, quasi-deified Mary of Roman Catholic dogma is far removed from the humble, unassuming servant of the Lord that we see in verse 38 of Luke 1. Gabriel's pronouncement to Mary, the Lord is with you, speaks of God enabling of her. It reinforces the truth that Mary was a recipient of God's grace, not the dispenser of it to others. Only God gives grace to sinners. The scripture indicates it continually. We see it in Romans 3.24, 1 Corinthians 1.4, Ephesians 2.8. And it's repeated use of the phrase, the grace of God. Realizing Mary realized she was an unworthy sinner. Mary was very troubled at Gabriel's statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. How do we know that Mary was an unworthy sinner? Mary tells us herself. If you look further down in the passage in verse 47, she says, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She called God her Savior and only sinners need a Savior. It was not just her, his appearing to her that caused Mary's consternation, but what he said to her. Mary was troubled because she knew that she was a sinner and did not understand why God had favored her. But Mary's genuine humility manifested her true righteousness. All genuinely righteous people are distressed and, der- and terrified in God's presence, and in this case, a holy angel of God. Because they are actually aware of their sin. Look at Isaiah's reaction in Isaiah 6, 5, and Peter's reaction in Luke 5, through 8, or Luke 5 verse 8. Gabriel's appearance and greeting unnerved Mary. Nothing in her belief, in her brief life, could have prepared her for this astonishing event. Seeking to calm her, Gabriel said to the frightened girl, basically, don't be afraid, Mary. His explanation, for you have found favor with God, reassured Mary that she had nothing to fear. Gabriel had come to her with a message of blessing, not judgment. Like Noah in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mary also found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God had sovereignly chosen to use her just like he did with Noah to help carry out his redemptive purposes. The issue was not her merit or her worthiness, but God's sovereign grace, which, like all his ways, is ultimately beyond human understanding. The divine child, Luke Luke 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. After Gabriel's greeting, Mary for the first time heard what the gracious work of the God in her life was going to be. In this, if the greeting had troubled her, 
She must have been dumbfounded at what he said next. Mary knew only one way she could conceive a son, through sexual relations with a man. She also knew that she had no such relations. As her question in verse 34 supports, how can this be since I am a virgin? The concept of a pregnant virgin was utterly inconceivable to her. It was an impossibility, a contradiction in terms, like a married bachelor or a square circle. Nevertheless, Gabriel's stunning announcement in the words fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of Messiah's virgin birth that we read in Isaiah 7:14 was that Mary, without the seed from a man, would conceive in her womb and bear a son. That staggering promise of a divine miracle was far beyond her understanding or any human comprehension. Then with a breathtaking brevity and one vast glorious revelation, Gabriel succinctly summarizes the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his saving work, his righteous life, his deity, resurrection, ascension, glorious return, and kingdom rule. He began with the command to name him Jesus. The name that was the Greek form of the common Hebrew name Yahshua, or we say Joshua, Yahweh saves, which introduces the reality of the Messiah's saving work. God is a saving God, and he came to seek and to save that which is lost. In obedience to the angel's command, Mary and Joseph, as we know, did name the newborn son Jesus, and that's recorded in Luke 2.21. Gabriel then told Mary that her son Jesus would be great, Megas in Latin. Once again, the understatement is striking. No superlatives are used for this. His life will define great. Let me say that again. No superlatives are used for his life. For his life will define great. Get the emphasis in the right place there. Sorry. Unlike John the Baptist, whose greatness was qualified as being in God's sight back in Luke 115. Jesus' greatness is unqualified. He is great in and of himself. His greatness is intrinsic in his very nature as God and is not derived from any source outside of himself. Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1.21 The true measure of Christ's greatness may be seen in his sharing of God's glory, of which God declared, I will not give my glory to another, in Isaiah 42, 8. This amazing child would be God incarnate, perfectly righteous in everything, every thought, everything he said, and everything he did. He would die as a sinless sacrifice, providing himself as a substitute for sinners, offering his atoning death to save them from their sins. But that's not the end of the story. He would not remain dead, but would rise to reign. The culmination of Christ's work would come when the Lord gives him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Gabriel's words emphasizes both the Jewish character of Christ's kingdom, since he will rule over the house of Jacob, 
as well as the rest of mankind and its eternality since his kingdom will have no end. The virgin birth, a divine miracle. The Bible records, as we know, some amazing births. Isaac's birth was nothing short of miraculous since his father Abraham was 100 years old and his mother Sarah was 90 years old and barren. The Lord also miraculously opened up the womb of Manoah's wife and she gave birth to Samson. Similarly, God allowed Hannah, who was also barren, to become pregnant with Samuel. And only a few months before, we just saw Gabriel coming to Zacharias and Elizabeth that they, in their elderly elderly years, a barren couple would conceive a child. That child, John the Baptist, was called by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah and was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that time, Matthew eleven eleven. But the most remarkable birth, as we know, of all was that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. Remember the rest of John 1, 14, full of grace. Supernaturally conceived in a virgin without a human father. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is foundational to Christianity since it is the only way to explain how he could be both God and man. To deny the virgin birth then is to deny the biblical truth that Jesus Christ is both God and man. And to affirm another would be a false Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.4 For if Jesus had a human father, he was just a man. And if he was just a man, he could not be the Savior. And if Jesus is not the Savior, there's no gospel, no salvation, no resurrection, no hope beyond this life. And as Paul noted, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are all still in your sins. If we have, hope, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men to most be pitied. We may as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 19, and 32. The serious implications of using Jesus, viewing Jesus as a mere man led Paul to pronounce a curse of those who would propagate that satanic lie in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Verse 34, looking at Mary's supplication, her pleading humbly. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The astonishing announcement from the angel of God that she was to be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah left Mary shaken and confused, overwhelmed by the implications of this announcement and wondering how it would be practically implemented. And she asked Gabriel, how would this be since I am a virgin? The thought of having a child without impregnation of a man to her was inconceivable, as we noted. But Mary's question did not reflect doubt or skepticism, unlike Zachariah's. She believed what the angel told her, but did not understand how it could happen. So what was God's strategy? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. In response to Mary's request for clarification, Gabriel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
the Holy Spirit would be involved in the creative miracle of the conception of the God-man is not surprising since he is God and was involved in the creation of the world. When the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the waters. Genesis 1-2. Restating the profound reality of the Spirit's involvement underscores its significance. Gabriel said to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The creative influence of the Spirit of God would overshadow Mary to produce a child in her womb. That divine creative miracle guaranteed two things would be true of Mary's son. The child will be born, to be born will be called Holy and the Son of God. Everyone who has ever lived with the sole exception of the Lord Jesus Christ has been born a sinner. David illustrated that truth when he wrote in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was not saying that he was an illegitimate child, but that from that time of his conception, he was a sinner. But Christ has always been the sinless son of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus had to be perfectly holy son of God because his nature is that of the Holy One himself, God the Father. That rich title is uniquely appropriate for him. Even Jesus himself, God the Father, the Satan, and the demons, and Paul all applied it to him, son of God. Here the term is signifying that Jesus by nature, the son of God, is manifested in human flesh. In the words of the writer Hebrews, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Hebrews 1.3. Next, God's sign, verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Though Mary did not explicitly ask, though Mary did not explicitly ask for a sign to remove doubt, God graciously gave her one to strengthen her. That divine sign involved her older relative Elizabeth. The shocking news introduced by the exclamation, "Behold, your relative," which Mary was undoubtedly hearing for the first time that her relative had conceived a son in her old age. That miracle that occurred for Elizabeth was one of conception in old age, not a virgin conception that Mary would experience. God gave the sign not because Mary doubted the angel's words, but to provide an anchor for her faith. Then we see God's sovereignty in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. It is one thing to say something is going to happen. It's another thing to make it happen. What Mary heard was she realized humanly impossible. Therefore, Gabriel reminded her that because of God's unlimited power, nothing will be impossible with him. The proof Gabriel offered, as noted, was Elizabeth's conception of John. And then we see in verse 38, Mary's submission. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
and the angel departed from her. Her humble response demonstrated Mary's willing submission to God's unfolding purpose. She saw herself as nothing more than his willing, humble slave and responded by saying, let it be to me according to your word. She did not ask about Joseph, who obviously would know the baby was not his. Mary would, have, would thus have to face the stigma of unwed motherhood and the appearance of having committed adultery, the punishment for which was death by stoning. But in humble obedience, Mary's faith willingly trusted God to vindicate her. Mary's dramatic encounter with the angel Gabriel ended with this short, simple postscript, and the angel departed from her. His mission accomplished, Gabriel returned to the presence of God. The God-man was going to be born, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus who would save his people from their sins, the divine Redeemer, the holy offspring, the divine King who will reign over a kingdom that will last forever. This account demonstrates that God's promises will be fulfilled as they were in Mary's life. It also reveals the sovereign God accomplishes his purposes through his willing and obedient slaves as he did through Mary. Without regard for the implications and the potential risk that she would face, Mary faithfully rested in the sovereign purposes of her Savior and God. That is her true magnificence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing us with your word. We thank you for teaching us that you are the sovereign God of the universe. And we thank you for Mary's example of being a humble, obedient Slave to you, Lord. May we all be obedient to your word and uphold your word and proclaim it to the world in this season of Christmas when most people are thinking about our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.